All right. Um, y'all go ahead and be turning to Luke 14. Luke chapter 14. And uh, I'm going to tell you something before we get there while you're turning. Today's a gut punch. It is a gut punch. This is arguably the uh, one of the most challenging texts, one of the most challenging uh, things Jesus said out of everything that he spoke during his lifetime right here. This is going to punch you right in the gut. And these words have been uh, d- debated over the last 2,000 years by uh, some, of the, some of the most uh, uh, knowledgeable theologians. And uh, these, it's tough. Um, what Jesus is teaching us today, what we're going to look at, uh, what we're going to look at is, uh, is that there's a cost to consider when we, when we say we're going to follow Jesus uh, he's not asking us for part-time devotion. He's not asking uh, for us to, to come to church uh, just on Sunday mornings. He's not asking for us to come twice a year on Easter and Christmas. He's not asking just for a one-time devotion by walking an aisle or, or praying a prayer or, or being baptized, being dunked in some water. That's not what he's asking for. He's really not asking you for anything at all. He's demanding. He's commanding you um, If you count yourself as a believer, as a child of God, he doesn't ask you. He commands you to give everything, to give it all, your entire life to him. So in this text uh, that we're going to read, he talks about relationships. He talks about bearing our cross and renouncing everything that we own. And so so my prayer today and and leading up to today is that, that we learn that the Lord demands everything we have of us. He demands everything we have to, be, to become his disciple. There should be nothing that we hold back from him. Amen? Amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's, uh, let's all stand as we read the text. Uh, it's Luke chapter 14. We'll start in verse 25. Starting in verse 25. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who observe it, begin to ridicule him saying this man began this man this man began to build and was not able to finish or what king when he sets out to meet another king in battle will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still far away he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace So therefore, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. This word is such a powerful Word and, and, I, and I pray today that we realize what you have intended to, to tell us, what you're trying to tell us, what you told your disciples and the crowds and the multitudes and why you did it and, and what you therefore telling us here today. I hope that we are able to count the cost. I hope that we're able to see and understand that, that while salvation is free, while, while our sins are forgiven as a gift 
following you will cost us everything. But I ain't never studied it the way I studied it this week. And so we're going to consider the cost of following Christ this morning. But before we jump in, let's just real quick, we can't forget the context that we're in here. Uh, last week, Buffy preached about those who had, uh, who had been invited to, uh, to a wedding banquet and they had rejected the invitation. And what they did to reject the invitation is they made up a bunch of excuses, right? And, and some of the excuses were probably legitimate excuses, but they were still excuses. So it showed where their priorities were. Their priorities weren't really with... Uh, with, with the Lord. So because of this, Jesus, he goes on, he's, he's pushing this crowd now that's, that's following him. And three times, what we just read, three times in the text, he says that they cannot be his disciple. So I want to go down through these things and I want to discuss the one hard truth at a time. Of course, that's how we deal with scripture, right? One thing at a time, one verse at a time, one sentence, one word at a time sometimes. And so um, here's our first point. Uh, here's our first cost in following Christ. Cost number one, hating your own family. Hating your own family. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. So Luke has changed the, the scene here. He's changed it up. He's, uh, he's gone from being in the house of the Pharisee to, to changing it up now. And he's, he's He's being followed by large crowds, and uh, these crowds are following Jesus, and they're, and they're listening to him teach. And so this is, a, this is a very different picture. What he's doing here is a very different picture of what most spiritual leaders today want. See, today, earthly leaders, those leaders that we, uh, that we see, uh, they want large crowds to follow them, right? Most, most spiritual leaders today, they want a big church, and they want a big congregation because numbers mean success, Right? Well, that's not what Jesus was saying. He, it's not what he wanted. Uh, he didn't want that kind of superficial following. And that's what he's, he's talking about in these texts. He's teaching the people here to consider the cost of discipleship and, and their allegiance to him before they actually start to follow him. He's telling them what it's going to cost them. And he's saying, look, are you sure you want to continue to follow me? Because this is what following me costs you. A lot of people were just uh, in these crowds. They were just following and, and listening, but they weren't fully associating themselves with Jesus. Right? They were just following along. They were listening. They were watching the miracles, and, and maybe they could get a miracle um, of their own uh, when he began to perform and do healings and, and things like that. Maybe they'd uh, catch one just by being close. That's why they were following him. So, so Jesus is challenging those people who are just following him to consider what it means to truly follow him as a disciple. So that's what he's doing, and that's the biggest question that he's addressing in our text, is what's a true disciple? What's a real, true, biblical disciple? How does a true disciple live? What does a true disciple look like? So the, the Greek word for disciple is mathetes, and it means learner or student. That's what the word means. And in, in, in that time, uh, in the ancient Greek, um, in, in their culture, it meant someone who would sit at the feet of his teacher. That's, that's what a disciple was. So the implication from Jesus here is that a true disciple of his is to live and obey God based on what he's teaching them. What Je based on the things Jesus is teaching, if you're a true disciple, you're going you're gonna to live and you're going to obey him while you sit at his feet. And so to be a true disciple is to live with complete, total devotion to Jesus and everything that he teaches. And like he said in John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? That's what a disciple is. Uh, but I also want you to understand that, that he's not talking about 
when he says this, he's not talking about some kind of super disciple or super Christian, right? He, he, these people aren't great mature men of the faith uh, that stand out above everybody else. The word disciple just talks about a normal, everyday Christian who claims the name of Christ. And it's something we all need to understand. There, there aren't, they're tough words to hear. They're, they're, uh, they're extremely tough words to hear. They're hard to hear, but they're for all of us. They're not just for a select few disciples or a select few Christians, super Christians, who stand out above everybody else. They're for all those who would claim to be a follower of Christ. So what he's saying when he, when, when he says, hate your mother and hate your father and your brother and your sister and your wife and kids, what does that mean? Does that mean that he really wants you to hate your family? No, no. And, and I'll get into it more in just a few minutes. We'll break it down. But, but the overall picture is that, is that if you're a true disciple, if you're a true follower of Christ, then Jesus is going to be more important to, to you than your physical family. He's going to be more important to you than your physical family, point blank. Although your physical family is, is, is the most basic social unit in the world, and they are important to you, and they should be important to you, there is a greater and more important family, which is made up of the disciples of Jesus. So your spiritual family and, 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 and your devotion to Christ should be more important to you than that of your physical family. I said a couple of weeks ago that uh, uh, the kingdom of God is not a democracy, Right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And uh, so we can't forget that, that. We can't forget that being a disciple of Jesus calls for a total devotion to Jesus and a total devotion to his lordship over us. Right? A lot of people, um, a lot of people, Jesus is fine. And he's, he, you know, he's fine to be the savior in a lot of people's lives. I want Jesus to forgive my sin, but I don't necessarily want him to, to, to control the, my entire life, right? So he's good enough to be the Savior, but he ain't good enough to be Lord of my life. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And we need to understand that. We need to realize that. And so his words here is, is Jesus putting the priority and the importance on, on things that are eternal compared to, to the physical family that's of this present world, right? And this present world is what? It's dying. It's going away. Right, it's gonna it's gonna pass away, but the the the, the eternal family, the, the the your allegiance with Christ will last forever, and that's what he's doing. He's putting the the uh, importance on things that are eternal. He's saying for us not to put in place the the basic family unit before following him. Don't allow your family, don't allow their belief system, don't allow their opinions or their priorities or their sins or their practices. Or, or even continuing your family name to get in the way of the priority of following Jesus. Don't allow any of that stuff to stand in the way. And so Jesus, and, and, and really we've got to understand at this time, in the culture that he's in, at this time that, that a person uh, would forsake his family if they were unbelievers. A person would, uh, following Jesus, if they were going to follow Jesus and his family was unbelievers, he would forsake his family. That's what it meant. So there wasn't a, a uh, minimal Christianity, right? A nominal Christianity. You were either uh, devoted to Christ or you weren't. There weren't casual Christians like we see today. There weren't carnal Christians at that time. It was either yes or no, right? There wasn't somewhere in the middle. So the loyalty to, to Jesus... Uh, having loyalty to him conflicted with loyalty to your family. And so a true disciple was to treat his loved ones as though they were people that they hated, 
right? And so not not literally, but but if 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 being with your family and spending time with your family and being devoted to your family meant that you had to step away from Christ, then then Jesus was saying, uh-uh. That's no, no. It's either me first or nothing. And so um this hatred it, it, it is, it, it, it's not affection or emotion or a feeling. It's, it's re- really, it's a retraction of allegiance, if that makes sense. This hatred is a retraction of allegiance to a person's family. So in the culture, there was, there was a very strong value on family and family relationships at that time. And Jesus is saying that even those in relationships, as important as they are, they cannot come before devotion to him at all. He commanded us to, if you remember Matthew 22, he commanded us to love our enemies. He, uh, but, but he's not, so, so what he's doing here, even though he says love our enemies, he's, the, hate, the word hate here, he's not using in an absolute sense. He's not saying absolutely really hate your family. It's a relative sense. So he's saying that our love for Christ should be so radical and so overwhelming that when we compare it to our love for our family members, it looks like hatred to any other relationship. He's saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then I got to be your first love. It's got to be all about me. He's not prohibiting us or stopping us from loving other people. He's just saying to love him more. Y'all agree? Does that make sense? And the truth of it is, is if we hate our own family, meaning that if we, if the word can, can mean too, the word hate that he uses here means love less. And so um, in some context, it means love less. So if we love our families less, then we love Jesus, then we, and we give him our full devotion, uh, then, then what's going to happen is, is by God's grace we'll be able to love our family more like God's called us to. If we love Christ more than we love our family, then we'll actually love our family more. So cost number one in, in, following, cross, in following Christ is uh, hating your own family. Number two, cost number two is hating your own life. Hating your own life. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So that's another question for us to ask. What does he mean? What does he mean by hating our own life? Well, again, it's, it's the same hatred as the hatred with your family. Because if you look at the text, he doesn't use hate. He just uses the word hate that one time. And then he gives the list of things to hate. So it means the same thing. In this sense, it's to love Jesus more than we love our very own life, right? To love him more, to put him in a higher position than our very own life. So your life is what? What does your life consist of? Your life consists of privileges and passions and priorities that that make up who you are. It it consists uh, in, in those you can identify, those would be your identity. And then it also makes, it's made up of what you do, which is your vocation, so life is the, is the common term that we use for everything we are in the world, right? Everything we are in the world would be consisted in our life, whether it's socially or positionally or financially, that makes up our life. And Jesus saying, is saying that with that can come idolatry. And it's easy for us to slip into idolatry. The idolatry of being consumed by all those privileges and all those passions and all those priorities where those things become more important to us than our walk with Christ. 
He said in Luke 9, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now look, that's radical, but it's real. It's radical, but it's real. He's to be the first in our lives, regardless of what the circumstances are or what the fallouts might be. Jesus is to be first. So as a Christian, your life doesn't belong to you anymore, does it? Your life's not yours. It belongs to Christ. And so... Like I said before, salvation is free for those who repent and believe. It costs you your entire life. It's free to have, for your sins to be forgiven. But if you're going to be a devoted follower of Christ, it costs you your entire life. So your life changes ownership. It changes ownership. So you've got to recognize that, that now you were a slave to, to Satan. You were a slave to the world. Now you're a slave to Christ. And, and, and on, you're on his terms, not yours. So you can't follow him and the world at the same time. Can you? It's impossible to follow Jesus in the world at the same time. So, so let me ask you, is Christ first in your life? Is he first in your life right now today? If not, look at what he says in the text. He says, you cannot be my disciple. Underline that. Circle it. Put an asterisk next to it. Highlight it. However you, 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 you can in your Bible, but, but bring attention to that. You cannot be his disciple if he is not everything, if he's not number one above everything else in your life. If you want to be Christ's disciple, then he's got to be first in your life. If you're devoted to anything or anyone else more than Jesus, then you cannot be his disciple. So what are you devoted to more today? What are you devoted to more right now than you are to Christ? Following Christ costs you your family. Following Christ... Uh, cost you your own life here's the number three the cost number three that we're going to look at is bearing your own cross cost number three bearing your own cross he said in verse 27 whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple the greek literally reads here whoever is not bearing and is not coming after me that's a continuous in the present tense so it's a continuous ongoing coming after and bearing of your cross so the focus of Jesus is, has here is not just the beginning of your salvation. It's not at the very beginning of when you get saved, but it's what you're doing right now in the present tense with regard to him and his kingdom. What are you doing today and what have you been doing since you've been saved? What are you doing right now and what will you continue to be doing? That's what he's saying. That's what bearing your own cross means. Cross bearing is a constant dying to yourself and a constant self-denial for the cause of Christ. That's what cross-bearing is. We just read from Luke 9. I just read it. Let me read it again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So look, God gave us his best, right? God gave us his best when he gave up his son so that we could be saved. He gave us everything he had. He gave everything he had in the person and the work of Jesus. And now he demands that we give him our best. He demands that we bear our crosses. And that means that, that we're being identified with Jesus and being treated just like Jesus because of our identification with him. 
Jesus said in John 15 that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world, if you were, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's what it means to bear your own cross, to be hated by the world and to accept it and to know that every single day you're going to, you're going to be different than everybody else in the world. Everybody that's not a Christian who wouldn't count themselves to be a follower of Christ, you're going to look different than they are. And they're going to ridicule you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to tell you how wrong you are. And how they're going to tell you how much, um, how much culture has evolved today and how Christianity is, is stepping all over that. They're going to tell you that you're not a forward thinker. That's what my wife told me yesterday. I wasn't a forward thinker. So they're going to tell you that you're not a forward thinker. But that's a part of bearing your cross. We need to put ourselves in the culture of this, of this time, Jesus' time. When the crowd heard what he was saying, what they heard him saying was they couldn't be his disciple if they didn't forsake their allegiance to Rome. That's what he was basically saying. If they weren't facing, the, if they would not forsake their allegiance to Rome and be willing to suffer the most vicious death on a cross for his sake. One commentator says, taking up of the cross was a voluntary acceptance of martyrdom. Think about that. Taking up your cross is a voluntary acceptance of martyrdom. And I'm not trying to be condemning when I say this, but it's, it's interesting how many Christians cherish the crosses that they wear around their necks? But can you imagine anybody in Rome wearing one? Can you imagine anyone in Jesus' day wearing it as jewelry? Think about it. The cross was a symbol of what? A shame. A symbol of torture and death. It was, it was the most vicious and horrific death a person could face and experience. And it was only reserved uh, for criminals and for slaves so to wear a cross on a necklace in that day would have been extremely odd and extremely strange. It'd be like somebody wearing an electric chair around their neck today. Marty told me that last week or the week before. He had a conversation with somebody in the school. And, and that makes sense. It'd be like us wearing an electric chair around our neck today. So crosses were badges of humiliation and shame and suffering. But it's ironic, too, that it's the cross where we found, find salvation and the forgiveness of sin. And so I get it. I know why people wear them today. I understand that today it's, it's a symbol for a lot of people. It's, it's, it's precious to them, right? But we got to remember that the cross we bear is not just for wearing, but it's in the bearing that we show our commitment to the reality of being dead to sin and alive to Christ. So the cross we bear is a symbol and a picture of our being dead to the world. Being dead to the world. And, 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 and so it's, it's a symbol of being dead to any other devotion except Jesus. So as his disciples, we're to bear the cross that, that, that he gives us. Why are we to bear the cross that he gives us? Why does he say that we need to bear our cross and take it up daily? We need to bear our cross because he bore the cross of salvation for us. He bore the cross for us, so now we should bear the cross for him. Our cross bearings are privilege, right? It's, it's not, a, we, we call bearing our cross a, 
a problem. We call it, uh, it hardships in our life, you know, and, 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 but it's a privilege for us to bear a cross, to be identified with Jesus in his death. But it's also part of our growth and our sanctification to bear a cross as well. Romans 8, 28, 29 says, And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those who, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be formed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's goal in cross-bearing for us is making us just like Christ. He's, he's building us into the image of Jesus. Is it hard? Absolutely it's hard. Is it possible for us to endure? Absolutely it is. God teaches us that his, that his grace is sufficient, right? His grace is sufficient for everything that he would ever call us to endure in our life. Paul talks about it. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Who in here can honestly say that you're content with weakness and insults and hardships and calamity and persecution? I can't. I don't like it. I'm not content with it. I don't like it. And a lot of times I think, and I'm guilty of this, and I know all of us are, but a lot of times we trivialize our cross bearing. Our cross becomes anything that's inconvenient for us. Our air goes out in the summertime. It's on one of them 185-degree days around here, and we get caught in traffic. Oh, I'm bearing my cross. Not even close. Not even close. Listen, the number of Christians that, that were martyred, and I found this to be amazing. I didn't know this until, until, I, until I read it, but the number of Christians that were martyred in the 20th century outnumbered the total number of all the previous centuries combined. Is that not amazing? There were persecutions of Chinese Christians, the murder of uh, the Christians in Indonesia. There were tens of thousands of, of those in Sudan uh, that were sold into slavery by, by Muslims. And we're bearing our cross because our, our electricity went out for a couple hours yesterday while the ball game was on. Not even close. We trivialize the cross that Jesus has given us the privilege to bear. It's, it should be an honor for us to suffer for the sake of Christ. And look, you know, life's hard. But Jesus never promised it to be a bed of roses either, did he? He promised us peace and joy in the midst of our suffering. He didn't try promise us peace and joy instead of suffering. He said in the, in the midst of our suffering will he give us peace and joy. He told us that he overcame sin and death and the devil through his cross bearing. And because of that, we can suffer for his sake. C.S. Lewis wrote um, in Mere Christianity. I love this. He said, though Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I, want to, I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to cut it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all of the desires which you think innocent as well, and the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. 
So following Christ costs you your family. Following Christ costs you your life. And it calls for you to bear your own cross. Now let's look at cost number four, which is counting the cost. Counting the cost. Starting in verse 28, he says, For which one of you, when he, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So what Jesus is doing now is he, he gives us a couple of short parables and he illustrates what he's trying to what he's been saying here. He, basically, to be a minimal Christian, to, to just go to church and to be a minimal Christian, that's cheap and it's easy work. Right. Anybody can do that. But to follow him and to believe in him and to, to confess him before men, that requires self-denial. It'll cost you something. It, it'll cost you your sin. It'll cost you your, your self-righteousness or your worldliness. But all of it's got to be given up. Every bit of it's got to be given up. We've got to, we have to fight an enemy that comes at us with 20,000 followers. We've got to build a tower. But we've got to finish it too. That's exactly what he's saying when he gives these two illustrations. He tells a story of somebody building a tower that he can't complete because he didn't, but he didn't have enough money. When he talks about the king... He says a king doesn't enter into battle that's not, that he's not ready to deal with his, his opponent in. He doesn't come to face an opponent he's not ready to face. If he can't handle his opponent, then he sends off somebody to try to, to, to get a peace treaty signed. He says the same thing to us as disciples. He says, count the cost of what it means to be my disciple. Count the cost. So, so why is he saying that? He's saying that because he doesn't want you to... He's not saying that because he doesn't want you to be a Christian. Right? He's not trying to convince people not to follow him. He's, trying, he's not trying to make the gate more narrow than it already is. What he's doing is he's, he's saying, that, saying it to be completely, totally transparent and truthful with us and tell, it, tell us what it means to be his disciple. So his goal is to prevent people from following him, following him lightly and impulsively. Because nothing does as much harm to, to true biblical Christianity than for any of us to be a minimal Christian. Christianity has been harmed by the casual Christian, by the casual, non-devoted person who comes to church, who sits in the pew every week, who, who just comes to listen, fall asleep, nod all four or five times during the sermon. That is what has harmed Christianity. I'm sorry, but it's the truth. That's why Christianity is the state that it's in right now because people aren't devoted to following Jesus. You're not willing to give everything, not willing to count the cost and give everything that you own, everything that you have to follow Christ. You come to him on your terms, not his. He's warning all of those emotional aisle walkers that some big, big churches, and you know you've seen them, they beg them to come down the aisle. They'll give four or five invitations and play four or five verses uh, of the invitation hymn and beg those people to come and do business with Jesus so they can report big numbers. He's warning those people that, that, that don't know what's involved in following Jesus. And, and those people, those churches that beg them to come down, they don't typically tell them, what, what, what they're in for. 
Right. They don't tell them what's at stake or what they're in for. It's it's a warning. It's also a warning to others who want to who want to name the name of Jesus as Savior. I've already talked about this, but 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 they're really their hearts in the world. They want to say Jesus is my Savior, but he's not really my Lord. Right. Like I said, if he's not Lord, if he's not Lord at all or not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So following Christ costs you your family. It costs you your life. It costs you to bear your own cross. And Jesus is encouraging us to count the cost of following him. And the fifth cost is renouncing all that you have. Renouncing all that you have. He says in verse 33, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. The Greek word renounce means to to separate yourself from. So Jesus is saying that unless a person can separate themselves from all that they own, they cannot be his disciple. That la- this, this last condition really is a summary of the first two conditions, or at least it's a, it, the first two conditions are included in this one. He's not saying uh, for us to necessarily sell everything that we own and to go live in the desert or in a monastery. That's not what he's saying. He's telling us that, that as his disciple, we've got to acknowledge that everything that we have is his. Everything that we have, he's given us. A true disciple should dedicate everything God's given them, given him and allow him to be in control of everything that you have. We've got to be willing to give up everything we have in order to seek him without any obstruction. We can't be willing to say, well, you know, I know God's calling me to, to do this. I feel like God's, but I just really don't want to sell my boat and take that money to go do what he's called me to do. That, I'm telling you, it, it all belongs to him. It ain't your boat anyway. Right? It's not your house. It's not your job. It's it's he's given it to you. He's given you everything, and the only part you have in it is to be a steward of it. Stewardship's where a person takes care of another person's possessions. Right? So a steward doesn't actually own the possessions, the property or whatever it is, they just take care of it for somebody else. Well, God's giving you that boat and that house and that four wheeler and that and, and that car, that truck, that, that R V, He's given it to you to steward for Him. Because it's his. Every bit of it. It's his. That house you worked up you worked for for the last thirty years and finally got paid off, guess what? It ain't yours. It's God's. And he's allowed you to have it. That you know, the, the, the car, the boat, the motorcycle, the big screen TV, every bit of it belongs to him. None of it belongs to you. He's just made you a steward over it. And so all that we have, what we have in our possession is what God has given us. They're, they're, they're not, here's the other thing about it, it, it's too, is, is not only do we not really own them, but they're not to also own us. They shouldn't be so important to us that we're not willing to forsake it for Christ in order to, to uh, in, or, or that, we're not, that we're willing to forsake Christ in order to keep the possessions. And that's what a lot of people will do. They'll say, well, I know God's called me to sell this and, and, and go and, and do this with the money, but, but I'm just going to quit going to church. Because I want this boat. I really, I work hard for it. I want to keep it. We've got to have the right perspective. They're, they're all gifts of God, but in his sovereignty, he, he gives, and in his sovereignty, he takes away. But he, whether he gives or whether he takes away, we're still to praise him. We're still to praise him for every bit of it, for his goodness and his grace. Worldly, worldly material possessions have prevented many, many, many people from following Jesus. 
Because they're unwilling to give up and renounce all that they have to follow him. Look what he said in Luke 18. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult is is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So why? Why is it easier for a a camel to enter the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to to, to enter the kingdom of God? Because the truth is they don't trust God. They don't trust God. They don't, because, I mean, trusting God with their possessions is a crucial aspect of saving faith. See, some acknowledge that God exists. They, they believe that Jesus is a, is a good man and even a good Savior. Some will, some will go to Jesus when they're upset or sad or they need hope in their lives. They will acknowledge that the Bible is true, but will not trust God with their money or their stuff. He's got to be more important than our stuff. He's got to be. And if he calls us to give up our stuff for him, guess what you got to do? Give it up. We should be in a position that we're ready to do what he's called us to do in any given moment. We should, we should be possessed by him and not possessed by our stuff. And our stuff should only be used for his purposes in our life. All right, here's cost number six. Here's the last one. Sustaining like good salt. Sustaining like good salt. Salt's good. Verse 34 and 35 says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. So these last two verses are are Jesus putting a a conclusion. He's, he's, He's stamping and putting a conclusion on what he's just said. He's saying that that some of you who claim to be true disciples are really not by the way you think and by the way you live. In other words, if a person's priority is in their family, if if their identity is founded in what they do for a living or, or the things that they possess, if they're unwilling to give up their possessions, then they're not his disciple. He already told his disciples in Matthew 5 that they were the salt of the earth. Matthew 5.13 says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And salt, we've we got to understand salt at that time and the culture was, was very valuable. It was highly valued. As a matter of fact, the soldiers, part of the soldiers' pay would be insult. It was a, it's, a, it's preservative. It was a purifying agent. It was an antiseptic, uh, uh, you know, uh, it made stuff cleaner, so uh, it was used on wounds. It may sting a little bit on a wound, but it would uh, it would kill infections. And it also gave flavor to things, but uh, most of all, it made people thirsty. Today, salt uh, our salt that we have today is pure, right? It's it doesn't lose its flavor, but in that day, the salt did. It was impure, and it would lose its flavor, especially if it came in contact with the earth. It would lose its flavor, and so. Um, once the saltiness was gone, there was no way to, to restore it. You couldn't get the saltiness back in it uh, and restore it. And so the salt was thrown into the street as, as weed killer. That's what they would do with it. So when salt lost its saltiness, it was useless. It was useless. So a disciple who's not willing to forsake everything to follow Jesus as, as a disciple is like salt that's not salty. It's worthless. That's a tough one to hear. Really, as you study this, that's tough. And you look at his words here. 
Salt is good, but if salt's lost its taste, how should its saltiness be restored? It is of no use for the soil or even for the manure pile. If a disciple is not willing to forsake everything, if you're not willing to give up everything you have for Christ, you're useless to him. He's not looking for half-hearted disciples. He's not looking for people who have not really considered the cost of being a disciple. We've got to all consider what it costs to follow Christ. If you're not ready to forsake every other devotion in your life, renounce all your possessions, your plans, your desires, your dreams, your goals, then you cannot be his disciple. He's saying, don't just give me your heart. I want more than your heart. I want everything that you are. I want all of it. I want your total undivided loyalty. That's what disciples are like. That's, he said, that's why I lived and died to create. That's what I lived and died to create. Men and women from every tongue, tribe, and nation who value, more than any, value me more than anything else in this world. See, if Jesus ain't who he claimed to be, then this right here was the most arrogant thing that was ever said in the, in the whole history of humanity. That he will accept nothing less than you giving everything to him or giving everything for him. If he wasn't who he said he was, this right here was uh, arrogant. But Jesus is who he claimed to be. Are you being who you claim you are? Are you being, are you, if, if you're a disciple, if you would raise your hand and say, I'm a disciple of Christ, do you look like it? Does your life look like it? Are you willing to give everything up for Jesus? Or would you say, hmm, or would you, would you stick that check in the collection plate or, or hand that check to somebody who's in need of it that he's told you to sell, to sell something to give to this person and as they went to grab that check from you, you didn't let it go. You just hung on to it and hung on to it and hung on to it. Might as well keep it. Might as well keep it. Are you who you claim you are? Because Christ is who he claims he is. Let's pray. Father, God, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, it's tough. It is hard. It is difficult to deal with. It is, I mean, when, when, when I read this week how, how that if I'm not willing to give everything up, which I don't think I've been the majority of my Christian life, if I'm not willing to forsake everything to follow you, then, then as your disciple, I'm useless. I'm worthless. God, that's tough to hear. That's a punch in the gut. But God, I pray right now that I, I, I repent of that and I pray that you would that you would help restore me. And that, that, that from this day forward, that, that I would be devoted only to you, only to your kingdom, only to, to that, that, you know, I have goals and plans and desires. We all have goals and plans and desires, but they should never come above you. My relationship with my wife and my kids and my family, my mother and father, they should never come above you. It is because of my relationship with you that those relationships would be as, as, as great as they should be. So, God, I pray that my perspective, as wrong as it's been, that it would be restored and it would be changed. And that, that everything that I, that I now look to would be firstly you. And that everything else would flow out of that relationship. Lord, we love you. We honor you. And I ask you right now that if there be any amongst us that, that are not children of God, that you would open their eyes, that you would uh, give them ears to hear right now. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. So I think as we, as, as we look at these words, 
today. We need to, we need to examine our lives. That we need to go home. We need to examine our lives. We need to see what in our life that we've elevated above Christ. And I promise you, every person in this room has something or more than one thing that they have elevated above Christ in their life. We all do. We've got to examine our lives and we've got to point out those things in our life that we've elevated above him. Whether it's a family member or some possession that we own, a job that we have, are we dying daily to ourselves? Because that should be our goal. He's laid out right here in our text what it takes to follow him. And I pray that we align our lives to that. We, may we count the cost of being his disciple. Our prayer should be that, that, we, that, that we should die to ourselves and live devoted to him. That should be our daily prayer. And for those in here that, that may be outside of Christ, those who are just Christian in name alone, listen, you're an army of 10,000 and the king's advancing. And he will kill you. He will defeat you. Now's the time for salvation. There's no sinner so great and there's no sin so black that God will not forgive. The gospel's simple. The gospel is simple. It's Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. He's the son of God, the son of man. He was sent into the world to be, to be born of a virgin that he might live sinless and keep the law perfectly and that, you, that the law that you and I break every single day, he kept. He went to the cross where he was lifted up to die and on that cross, the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him were transferred to him and he who knew no sin, God made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. The worst of us was laid upon him and the best of him was laid upon us. It was by his death that Jesus provided salvation to all those who would ever call upon his name. He said it on the cross. He said, it is finished. But he didn't say, I am finished. Because he rose from the grave. He walked out from the tomb as a living, victorious Savior. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So come to him. Deny yourself. Look away from all the good works and, and, and look only to Jesus. He came to seek and save those who are lost. So will you tell him, tell him right now that you're a sinner? Will you, will, you, will you pray right now? If you've never come to Christ in your life, will you tell him right now that you're a sinner? Will you tell him how sick you are and how unable you are to save yourself? If you call upon his name and you come to him on his terms, on his terms, he will save you. He'll wash your sins away. And when he washes your sins away, guess what? You're clean. You're pure. You'll be as pure. You'll be pure from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. You'll, when God looks at you, what he sees is only the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And you'll, you'll find acceptance with the Father. That's salvation. Right? That's the gospel. So today's the day of salvation. So let's all stand.